Welcome to episode one of the People's Office podcast. I am joined here today with our new communications director, Shandrea Thomas, and we're taking a few minutes today to reflect back on a recent important training opportunity that I had. Um, and I think it's worth saying and real to say that it was a life-changing experience. And so I'm glad to have a moment to reflect on it. Yeah, I agree. You know, since you got back from your trip, I was always curious about what you experienced, what you learned, and what you would bring back to the people's office. Well, in my first two years in office, I've had a few training uh, and conference experiences and opportunities. Mm -hmm. The state provides some training out of Phoenix, which can be very helpful, but I'm also a part of a national organization called Fair and Just Prosecution. Generally, our conferences are exactly what you would expect. We're, we're at a table in a hotel room. Local experts are coming in to really feed us with information. Uh, you're, you're pumping the coffee. You're trying to stay warm in the hotel room. When I saw this opportunity in April and was invited to this opportunity to go to Montgomery and then Selma, Alabama, it was completely different. It was going to be more of an experiential training mm -hmm. to go to what many could say is the birthplace of so much of our civil rights movement and to study the criminal justice system from that lens. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of wondering too, when you think about those locations, the significance of the historical things that took place there, how did the trip start? Where did they take you and what, what happened? We arrived in Montgomery, uh, I want to say, on a Wednesday night in April. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really blew my mind about Montgomery, it was my first opportunity to visit that city, was how profound it is to just even visit the city itself. Mm -hmm. It's one of those downtowns where every single corner has some significance. Mm -hmm. There is a gorgeous statue, perfect to height and weight, marking where Rosa Parks was waiting for the bus. The, the church where Dr. Martin Luther King was pastor is two blocks away from that on Dexter. The state capitol where so much important legislation came and went is steps away from that. You can see where Rosa Parks was waiting from the steps of the capitol. Mm. It, it's, it can't be overstated how much history unfolded right there. So when you went to Dr. King's church, what was that experience like for you? What did you see? How did it feel? Similar to just not realizing all that I was going to experience in Montgomery and, and, and frankly just not fully appreciating Montgomery's role in American history. I couldn't believe that we got to visit the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. King had been pastor for, I think, 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. They've done such an extraordinary job because the building is not restored in the way that you visit something and it's, it, it kind of looks shiny and new. Um, it's preserved. And so by that I mean you walk in and you are overwhelmed that everything is, is exactly the way it looked the weekend before when he gave a sermon. I have a dream that one day 
this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Again, you can't even articulate how it like feels and smells and sounds to be that close to him and the moment in time and the movement and, and everyone who was sitting in those pews as we did to, to listen about, about him and about those moments in time. You know, I know that Selma was part of it too, and we know, uh, I saw some social media posts too that, you know, you, you crossed over the Pettus Bridge. That in itself had to be quite the experience, just knowing what happened there, the significance of that day when, you know, there were, you know, peaceful marchers and things like that and everything that happened. So what was that like for you? How did you feel? Because I know a lot of times when you go to places of great significance like that, that has so much happen, you feel things. I'm just wondering what, what came to you with that? You're putting it perfectly. And what I would say is leading up to departing for Alabama, I had a bunch of resource materials that I was reading about not only our criminal justice system, but tra tracing the roots all the way back to slavery because mm -hmm. there's a huge river and a port right there coming into Montgomery. And it was a huge uh, slavery port. And so to know that we were going to spend three days in Montgomery and then we were going to end the trip by all taking a bus together to Selma and walking over that bridge was sort of an incredible buildup over the three days that we were there. Um, and and, and you, you put it perfectly that it is a powerful pressure. It's a little bit hard to articulate. It, so much of Selma in particular as well is exactly the way it was not that long ago. And so to, to walk up the bridge and crest up, you feel the power and the positivity and the hope of all those peaceful marchers asking for voting rights mm -hmm. and then you get to that top and you look down at where all those Alabama state troopers were waiting mm. and and then the fear is palpable as well um, knowing what was coming for them to some extent and having the courage and the bravery to to stay still and to continue to try to diplomatically talk it through mm -hmm. and, and to begin praying. They began praying. Um, it, it is a powerful feeling that, is, that overcomes you to mm -hmm. just be in that space and breathing in that air over the river there. That actually reminds me of a trip I took to Memphis. I went to the Lorraine Motel and it's preserved. Time stopped that day. The room, the spot where you know, Dr. King was shot and killed, and just the energy and the whole impact and significance and gravity of what happened in that space. It's something that, like you said before, it's hard to explain because it's something that you experience and feel. You said the word energy, and I, I think that's the right word. <clears throat> it's almost like a, like a crackle or a sizzle in the room of all that energy that had been in there, whether it's the church, uh, whether it's the top of the Selma Bridge, the, Pettis, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, 
it it's it's almost like the air still vibrates there in some way because because such powerful human action occurred in those places. How did it change you and what you knew before and how you felt after you left? I learned so much history that some of which I'm sure I learned in my youth as a student, as mm -hmm. part of American history and government history. I learned a lot more that I don't think was covered or hardly mm -hmm. could be covered. You, you need to devote the kind of time to go and study and trace what it meant for the country to enslave humans, what it meant to pass the amendment, but to put this huge caveat in there that said, we're going to be freeing slaves unless, of course, they are a convict. Unless, of course, they have been convicted of criminal activity. Mm. And the way, of course, that was abused to continue to target and to capture and to keep free labor. So many of the statutes literally said it expressly that mm. certain criminal laws were, were, were expressly only for Negroes, as mm -hmm. it was written at the time. And so that caused an obvious financial motivation and racial motivation to create all kinds of, and we're, we're talking mere public offenses, you know, openly passing laws that say uh, walking on the wrong side of the street while Negro. Uh, not deferring to white people uh, and moving out of their way. You know, these were all minor public offenses, but then the moment you were caught, arrested, charged, sentenced, you were now a convict, which allowed landowners to just immediately recapture their former slaves as now uh, convict leases. And I didn't even know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I didn't, I didn't even know the entire convict leasing period and how that began to affect what would be our criminal code up yeah. until today. And that's the thing, when you really stop and think about the systemic things that are in place to this day that affect people of color overall, I think people may not realize the whole backstory that leads into where we sit today. What do you feel like you can take away from that experience to help incorporate into what, you, what you're doing right now? Well, a huge focus of the three, or maybe I should say four days, was juvenile justice. So we were moving through the city of Montgomery which has extraordinary museums dedicated to this work. We, we started at the Legacy Museum, which is devoted to slavery. Uh, we spent four hours there. We could have spent the whole day and tra tracing through slavery and, and then moving into convict leasing, as we've talked about, Jim Crow, mass incarceration. We. In the afternoon, we visited the Peace Garden, which is 
beautifully named mm -hmm. and beautifully designed, and it is dedicated to the subject of lynching. Mm. Um, extraordinarily powerful to be in a, a statue garden uh, walking around what look like gorgeous, ornate structures and their, their coffins and their grave markers mm -hmm. to mark and to give you the idea of the volume of lynching. So the theme in particular that we were carrying through all of these places that we were visiting was the impact that all of this has had on the entire criminal justice system. I understand that there was a group there that focuses on incarcerated young people. Uh, tell me about what they were doing there and what, what did you learn from them? It, it added so much power and education to the whole experience. So as, as we all, as elected prosecutors, are moving through these incredible spaces, almost all of us for the first time visiting Montgomery, this network is visiting us as well, and they are all with us moving through these spaces for the first time in their lives as well. And this is the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network, or ICANN mm -hmm. for short. These are Miller Montgomery kids. What I mean by that is that these are all individuals who have been released from prison due to the Miller Montgomery two United States Supreme Court cases. First in Miller, Miller said we shouldn't be sentencing children to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In other mm -hmm. words, we shouldn't be sentencing children to die in prison mm -hmm. of a natural death. And then Montgomery came years later to say, if, if we're not going to do this anymore, if we're not going to sentence juveniles to life in prison without parole, we're going to obligate prosecutors to go back and look at children who are in prison now, look for them, and reopen their cases and review and see if they, they should not be in prison for the rest of their life, if there should be relief. Following the, those two cases, mm -hmm. children started to be released. 10, 20, 30 years later, having served all that time in prison. Um, especially, of course, where they're showing good conduct, um, restoring, rehabilitating. Mm -hmm. And so the individuals who were with us are, are part, part of that organization. There were some attorneys and, and staff who, who work with people coming out of prison, mm -hmm. but we had 15 individuals who had been released from prison with us experiencing all of these places right alongside with us, sharing their life stories with us so gracefully and graciously and, and asking us questions. The, the exchange was powerful. When you stop and think about it, you think you look at how the world operates today, the judicial system now, systemic racism, institutionalized racism, you have all these things in place. They still exist. Some people think they don't. They still exist to this day. Were you guys able to kind of sit there and think about solutions to where, you, where your location is? Or was there a think tank of, of sorts with that? Absolutely. 
and that so we would we would debrief all of the experiences we were having mm -hmm. they they were extremely heavy and we would debrief and then we would hear from criminal justice experts academics um, doctors working in the field mm -hmm. on how you create solution-based data-driven policies to claw racial disparities out of the system. And, and so much of that can't be done without acknowledging where we've come from and the disparities that exist today. The perfect example here was, was our decision to not have prior convictions disqualifying people from diversion options. Mm -hmm. Because if you believe, and of course we do, because the data is clear that, that certain neighborhoods were over-policed, over-surveilled, over-arrested, over-charged, and over-sentenced, then people will never get a chance to qualify for diversion programs, for treatment programs that may be necessary in today's, in today's world at this stage of their life. And we saw immediate results. In, in equity, in access, access to our programs, regardless of race. So, you know, this is a question I have. When it comes to the goals that you have in this office with restorative justice and all of that, what, what are you seeing? How are you feeling about that right now? The issue or the, or the change or policy that was on the forefront of my mind the entire time we were there was, of course, juvenile justice. In other words, getting to know these 15 adults now in their 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. makes you want to think about, of course, what are we doing with children here in Pima County now who are mm -hmm. system involved? And that was just so heavy mm -hmm. on my mind. And, and the timing was so intense because we have had an increase, at least in the first two years and really at the height of COVID, of kids who have been arrested more frequently with more serious crimes. In Arizona, under the law, if you are 15, 16, or 17, and you commit a, a certain small number of very violent offenses, I don't have any discretion. I don't have any choice. Those, those children are automatically taken to the downtown adult jail. They're on Silver Lake, they're separated, they're segregated, but they, and they are tried as adults. That's a population that we're making sure are having access to education and services, working closely with the school superintendent. There's another category of children where the question is, do they stay at juvenile mm -hmm. when they are so young? when they are 12, 13, or 14, or they're 15 and 16 and they haven't <coughs> committed a violent offense, and there is discretion. We go through a very serious process here, case by case, every time. The court has the child evaluated for a full psychological evaluation. Mm -hmm. We get our own psychological evaluation on each case so far, because the question is, 
Is the child so far gone that they cannot be rehabilitated? There is no future for them, and so they should just be tried as an adult. This was all really powerfully on my mind because I was facing my sixth one of these since being in office. Very, very young children, 14, 13, even a 12-year-old. I could see their future reflected in these adults that I was meeting. And I was so relieved that we had made the right choice all six times to keep the child in juvenile, to invest in them, to rehabilitate them, and to not send them to adult court with no services, no rehabilitation, for some 10, 15 years, knowing exactly the kind of damage that comes back out, back out into our community. It was very affirming to see what happens when you do, when the system tries to correct, invests, rehabilitates, and the extraordinary product that can come back when people are returning and, and becoming completely productive members of society exactly as we, we want them to. So, so is that essentially the definition of restorative justice? How would you define that? Restorative justice is, uh, is an issue that was also very much discussed at this particular conference um, because these, um, these individuals who work with ICANN and other agencies are very much using restorative justice. It's also on the forefront of our mind because we are in the middle of launching uh, what we believe is Arizona's first adult restorative justice program uh, with a huge nod to our tribal brothers and sisters who've been using restorative justice since time in memoriam. And they've been so kind and helpful and sending wisdom our way. I'm so grateful to our, for, with our relationships with both Pascua Yaki and Tahana Atam. Restorative justice is the, the very simple concept of looking to restore or to make as nearly whole as possible someone who has suffered harm. So what that means in the criminal justice system is that the tools we have in place to serve victims as best as we can, they're very limited as far as actual restoration. You know, victims find themselves just thrown into a system that frankly is geared a little bit more towards focusing on the defendant and which is critical to honor mm -hmm. constitutional rights, obviously. But, but it doesn't have that restorative of, of how do we restore the victim back to as nearly whole as possible. So this is a very victim-centered, a very victim-centric program that empowers a victim to choose restorative justice if they want, to, to offer it. Mm -hmm. If the defendant agrees, it eventually leads towards an agreement where the, the accused, the defendant, is working towards very specific goals that the victim has laid out, requests, to, to try to make the person they, they've harmed as, as nearly whole as possible before that harm occurred. Uh, victims are very empowered. They can 
choose not to offer restorative justice at all. If they do offer it, they can send their desires, their, their information and their feelings about what happened purely by, by, by letter. They can send it through, through an advocate, through a surrogate who speaks for them, or they can engage fully in an opportunity to tell the person face-to-face, eye-to-eye, in a, in a circle, in a supported, safe circle, a facilitator, community members, mm-hmm. their advocate, mm-hmm. to tell the person how they harmed them mm-hmm. and what harm was caused to them and what it meant to them. And the outcomes of these cases are extraordinary. People do come out of it empowered and feeling restored and those who have caused the harm are exponentially less likely to cause harm again than someone who's traveled through the system. Thank you for explaining that because I think that's a term that's been out and about. And I think some people may not really know exactly what that is. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Back to your journey with this trip. um, What surprised you the most? I, I was, I certainly wasn't prepared for how powerful it would feel to simply be in, in the, the town. It's a, it's a small city of Montgomery and then really exponentially more with Selma, because Selma's very, very small. I've been to Boston and I've been to Philadelphia where, where tremendously important things happened at, at the creation of uh, uh, the Constitution and the nation. And, and, and so you get that feeling. But I think with Montgomery, it's so much closer in time that it feels very visceral, that we are talking about our elders, our grandparents, age, mm-hmm. still living now. You know, th- this is their real life mm-hmm. and their stories being told. The two museums, the Legacy Museum and the Memorial Peace Garden, are they're both relatively very new and extremely well done. Visiting, visiting them both harkens to feelings if you have visited the Holocaust Memorial. It's extremely difficult to visit. It's extremely heavy. It's very emotional. The public was there with us touring. You know, we were just in our own little group. The place was full with locals, Alabama residents, and the people from all over the country and all over the world. Mm -hmm. We heard other languages. And it was not unusual for maybe half the room to be openly expressing grief and sorrow with what we were studying. On your trip, you took a special picture of a quilt? Yes. So what we're looking at here is a handmade quilt that was hanging in uh, a room in the museum at the Southern Poverty Law Center filled with quilts, uh, but really an homage to Congressman John Lewis. And this is just one image of probably thousand, a thousand references that I heard or saw to Congressman John Lewis while I was there. What's amazing about Congressman Lewis's presence um, in, in Montgomery and, and then obviously especially Selma, he remained so devoted to Montgomery and, and to Selma in particular and so present. So, that, so even though he was a congressman from, from Georgia, you know, Alabama I think fairly claims him as their own as well, he is considered the father of the Voting Rights Act, which, which passed so quickly, finally, finally, after that, that tragic 
morning on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. At the same time, I came away with a lot of hope for what we are doing in the modern era and what we can do, and a sense that it's not, it's not impossible. We, we, won't, we don't have to be trapped in, in the system of convict leasing. We can grow away from it. If there was one thing or one main message that you think you would like to have people take away from your entire experience, that one thing, what would that be? We went to a museum created by the Southern Poverty Law Center that was dedicated to all the unknown volunteers who were gathering in Selma that summer. Unknown names, unknown faces, many of them, not ever even recorded because they were the true foot soldiers of the movement. It makes you realize that People in the North and the West and from everywhere were just willing to get on buses and go dedicate their time and to take very serious risk. Yeah, I mean, risking their lives, literally risking their lives. It, it, absolutely. There's a wall, the, the first room that you come into in the Southern Property Law Center uh, Memorial Museum is all of these faces and not all of the names are known. It, over time, some are still being claimed, but it's all these beautiful photos of people who lost their lives, marching for voting rights completely peacefully. On the bus ride from Montgomery to Selma, there are memorials on the side of the road where people, people will, were killed just walking back after the march from Selma to Montgomery. It wasn't safe to, to, to do that, to move in that rural agrarian area from Selma to Montgomery to get back after the march, um, which took, I think, five or six nights sleeping in the fields. They were mm -hmm. so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea that a whole army of volunteers can can arise like that and lead very quickly after their march on that bridge to the passage of of the Voting Rights Act is very inspiring about what we can all do when we just get together and and work peacefully towards a goal. Well, I will say, Laura, thank you for sharing the way you think about the whole process and your experience there. And I think hopefully as people listen to the podcast, they will learn more about you and understand what we're doing here and why we're doing it. Right. Right. And and just and your desire to learn as much as you can to help, you know, make the world a better place. Yeah, thanks so, for doing this with me. Absolutely. Now you're the host. So it's all you next time. Special thanks to Tony Gallego. <laughs> or his three-part camera work here. <laughs> and that's it. Podcast one is officially in the books. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time, next month, to talk about the latest topic in criminal justice issues here in Pima County. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and PCAO newsletter. We'll have links in the description. If you have a show idea or questions, just email us at the People's Office Podcast at PCAO.pima.gov. Until next time, thank you for joining us. To be continued.